0: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, and it's really great to be back with you today. I just finished talking with Reginald Jackson about his amazing new book, Textures of Mourning, Calligraphy, Mortality, and the Tale of Genji Scrolls. And this came out, it's like hot off the presses, 2018 just came out with the University of Michigan Press. Now, it's a really extensive interview, so I won't talk too much here at the beginning, except to say this is a super, super inspiring book. It's a beautiful, not just as a sensory object to experience, to look at, to touch, to hold, but also in terms of the prose, the work that the writing does, the way that the work of the book um, kind of brings in the reader through the writing and the way that the written text and the images work together. It's just an amazing, astounding um, object and achievement. So the book itself looks at the interplay and the kind of intertwining and relationships between reading and dying, legibility and mortality through the work of mourning. And mourning here is something that's not just done um, on the part of an individual person. Mourning is also something that writing can do, that texts can can do. Um, And you'll see as you look at the book and you'll hear as you hear us talking um, in just a few moments how the reader is actually brought into that work and the ways in which mourning here is not just about loss. It's about doing positive critical work um, that can result in thriving, as you'll hear us talking about at the end. So this is a book that will be of interest to really anyone interested in Japanese literature, in art history, in performance studies, but also in transdisciplinary work. Um, and transdisciplinary works that specifically connects to uh, modern contemporary issues, even when it's talking about the medieval past. Okay, so with that, um, I'll leave you to it. And just thank you again for joining Reggie and I um, for our conversation today and for listening. I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Reginald Jackson about his brand new, beautiful, and super awesome book, Textures of Mourning. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Reggie. And thanks so much, first of all, for writing a super inspiring book and also for making time to talk with me. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great.
0: Um, So I'll say a little bit, um, just to situate um, uh, listeners who have no idea what the book is about, into the book, and then we'll kind of go from there. So Textures of Mourning, Calligraphy, Mortality, and the Tale of Genji Scrolls theorizes in the words of the book the relationship between reading and dying across three central texts. And we'll talk about these in turn. These are the Heian Period, the Tale of Genji, a 12th century illustrated Hand Scrolls of the Tale of Genji, or the Genji Scrolls, and then a 21st century resurrected Genji Scrolls exhibition. So there's a lot going on here, Reggie. I'm super excited to talk about this, but let's start at the beginning. What brought you to the study of Japan and to Han Japan in particular?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think, I think it's important to say, I mean, students and friends of mine know this story, but it was it was really a complete fluke. Uh, I um, was trying to get out of Chicago (laughs) uh, when I was uh, a freshman in high school and probably was trying before that too, but wasn't as successful. And uh, as part of that, I applied to a a boarding school, a public boarding school in Illinois called the Illinois Math and Science Academy. And as part of that application process, we had to uh, write down uh, a foreign language that we'd like to to take. And I'd taken Spanish quite against my will my first year. And just assumed I would take Spanish too. But they said in the event that you're unable to take the language of your choice, please list in descending order other languages that you'd be willing to take. And in my 13 or 14 year old hubris, not expecting to ever not be able to pass the placement test for Spanish too, I just wrote down Japanese, Russian, and Latin because it didn't matter anyway. and then i i failed the placement test uh and had to take japanese so um th- that was completely devastating. Um, and on the one hand, but I met this really amazing teacher, um, a guy by the name of Jonathan Besanson, um, who, you know, was an incredible teacher and changed my life, frankly. And uh, so a huge shout out to Jonathan Besanson. Uh, and uh, he was just amazing. And it was because of him, in fact, that I decided to stick with Japanese. And, and I'd always liked literature and reading. Uh, and it just so happened that by the time I finished high school, I knew that I really liked literature and I knew that I really liked Japanese. So I just kind of decided in a very kind of arithmetic way to just put Japanese and literature together and try to study that in college, but started off as an English major, in fact, uh, but was taking Japanese and Chinese and just had some really great teachers there, particularly Patrick Cadeau, um, who was my my mentor at, at Amherst College. And, you know, I just kind of stuck stuck with it. And, you know, after a year abroad in the Associated Kyoto Program in Kyoto uh, with folks like Tony Chambers and Suzanne Gay and Monica Betta, who works on No Drama, I was just, I was kind of hooked. But I had planned to, to, um, to do modern Japanese literature just because I liked Tanizaki so much. But, you know, people that know Tanizaki know that he's deeply invested. In fact, you know, he's my favorite Japanese author and, in fact, is only really good to the extent that he invested so heavily in pre-modern, but particularly kind of Heian literary tropes and, um, his spirit of, of experimentation and so forth drew so heavily on that work that at some level, even though I didn't really know it, I was, you know, I was really invested in that too, just by default, because I was, I really liked his work. And then I applied to graduate school to work on modern Japanese literature, uh, and went to Princeton eventually after some, uh, some thought and it turned out that the, the the modernist that I went to work with um, went elsewhere. So I kind of had no choice (laughs) if I wanted to stay at that institution, uh, but to do uh, hand literature because um, Hideki Richard Okada was there uh, as a pre-modernist and he was also awesome. Uh, And so uh, it was really because my advisor in modern literature left that I really had to think seriously about committing to, to hand literature. And, um, you know, it turned out with folks like Yoshiaki Shimizu doing, doing medieval art history and so forth. There was a, there was a real, um, in a way that I couldn't have anticipated, there was a real, um, pool of folks that were really interested in that material that that I could work with. And it it just kind of happened by accident really. So had not the stars aligned to, um, make me fail a Spanish placement test and then later, (laughs) um, move my advisor, my then advisor to another institution, I, I wouldn't be here. So uh, I'm glad I am. And I'm glad I've been able to make it work. But it was it was not, you know, some, some really well-designed plan that, you know, I started hatching in my bedroom as a teenager or something. It was really just kind of trying to respond to these, these different, um, these different forks that, that I, I couldn't have ever anticipated.
0: I heard you had a pretty amazing roommate in grad school as well. I'm just saying, (laughs) you know,
1: yeah, I, I did one in particular was, was incredible. Uh Um, brilliant. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, I hear amazing things about her. So anyway, well, maybe we'll get to
1: that.
0: So Reggie. You mentioned early in the book that the project wasn't always about death, right? And again, this is um, in true. the words of the book, right? You say that mm-hmm. it began as an investigation of midare, a tangle or disruption as a mode mm, of performance right. in medieval Japanese culture. So can you say a little bit about the genesis of the project and how you, can come, yeah, right. how did it come to look the way it? Does and how did you come to tangle and then to death?
1: To death, right now? No, it's um, you know, again, it was it was kind of by accident. I mean, I think that that it's important to say that you know, I've been interested in a lot of things for a long time. So, uh, music and visual art, and you know, I do some music and do some visual art, and, and I think that 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 year in Japan in particular was really was really formative. Partially because I got to to work with Anthony Chambers and and he introduced me to Tanizaki in a serious way, uh, and then because there were I really was interested in literature, but because there was no literature class uh, one of the semesters I took the closest thing I could find, which was a class with Monica Betta on on no drama, and that was just mind-blowingly amazing so just being able to see performances every week um week after week after week and she's just such a font of, of knowledge was really in- incredible and it you know it scared the shit out of me the first time i saw it i saw a play called oh i know a way which is based actually on um chapter the oh chapter of the tale of genji i hadn't read that yet but i was like oh if, if this is anything if the if if the book chapter is anything like what i've seen a i don't want everyone to read it but i kind of am curious about it and which is all to say that I was interested um, in midare through no. That's what got me into it. Um, and then when graduate school, when I was able to take a graduate seminar on, um, on heian calligraphy in particular, and then uh, also an emakimono or hand scroll seminar, and saw the Hindi scrolls for the first time and learned about this, this, um, this kind of mode of writing called midaregaki or tangled script, things started to kind of make sense to me um because it seemed to then to be a trope that was or you know an image that was recurring across different spaces and different in different uh, mediums so in hand scrolls um in no drama in literature and so i was trying to figure out frankly just how to put all the things that i really liked into some kind of coherent format mm-hmm. and it seemed to me that um that finding a some kind of motif or some kind of, um, some kind of theme that would let me do a lot of different things and move in different directions was what felt best. And that one, because it dealt with questions of gender and sexuality, because it dealt with uh, questions of performance and also um, kind of style, both on stage, but also in literary style and, and visual artistic style, that it was kind of the perfect vehicle for being able to ask a lot of different types of questions about a lot of different types of objects. Um, and so the dissertation was really about Midare. It basically had two halves, effectively, as opposed to chapters. It was really about no and about, um, about visual art. And Midare was just kind of the the cipher through which I was able to start to try to decode some some of the things that I saw happening in both of those realms. But when I started to think more about turning this dissertation into a book, it was interesting. There were a couple people, um, you know, Jim Kedlar actually at Chicago was was an interesting guy in this regard because who were really compelled by the, the kind of multimodal aspect of, of the project. And, um, Tom Hare, also one of my dissertation advisors was really interested in, you know, uh, for keeping both of those elements intact. Uh, and then there are a lot of folks who I think, um, were right in the end, uh, who said, no, it's too much. It's too hard to do those things well. Um, and do them justice in a book, particularly if it's going to be your first book, people won't know what to think of it. And it will seem, you know, likely through no fault of your own that you're too kind of discombobulated or that you're trying kind of spreading things too thin. And so it, it'll make much more sense if you just focus on one or the other and really kind of dive deep. Uh, and do it that way that'll be more legible and so you know the question of legibility was coming up in a very practical sense too in terms of you know how to make this book saleable and uh, discernible and hopefully even you know satisfying to the powers that be they're going to have to judge it and and you know um, ascribe some level of excellence or lack thereof to it and that would that's what really kind of chastened me and made me say okay maybe this isn't the time to to go and be ambitious in that regard. Uh, and it makes more sense and it's safer, frankly, for me to take out all the stuff on dance. you know. So as opposed to doing something that lets me unite, uh, combine the powers of calligraphy and dance, I should just shelve the dance stuff for now and really just focus on one aspect. Uh, because that will be, if I plan to stay in this career for a long time, that might actually bode better in the long term than trying to do those things at once uh, too early. So I was a little sad about that, but, it, you know, I think in the end, I'm happy with, I'm really happy with the way things have turned out, all told. And, uh, but it definitely made, um, for a lot of soul searching along the way in terms of what to keep and, uh, and what to, what to get rid of. I
0: mean, this is actually a great way to move to, um, something else that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I think, um... It's really helpful to hear about the process though. And, you know, I've also, mm. you know, we've been in contact or a little bit through the process um, yeah, and it's been sure amazing too. to watch yeah. it transform. And I think what we tend to so. like, even when we try to cut things out of our work and we think we're keeping them separate because it's still the same person doing the work right Mm -hmm. stuff is going to come in i mean so even um, we'll get to this when we talk um, about the book um, in the later chapters a little bit later but you may have Mm -hmm. taken the dance out of this instantiation of the study but still there's so much about movement and body and gesture right that's that comes in really beautifully in the study that i think that doesn't feel like a loss right um So it just, uh, although I'm really excited to see the next book, and we'll get to that too. Um, Yeah, of course. So you mentioned how ambitious, right, um, the project Mm -hmm. is. And um, it's a really beautifully ambitious, and I think, um, and I'll just assert this because it's true, a completely successful, um, (laughs) ambitious experiment um, in transdisciplinarity. Mm -hmm. So um yeah, well, thank you, you describe textures early in the book in the note to the reader, um, which mm-hmm. begins as a thank you to the reader for reading, mm-hmm. which is amazing, um, which I think is just um, evidence of the generosity to the reader that's there throughout the book, oh, and thanks. we'll also hopefully talk mm-hmm. about that. But you describe mm-hmm. textures as, quote, a transdisciplinary experiment that may well fail, but you hope nevertheless mm-hmm. performs positive work in the spiral down. Now this transdisciplinarity mm-hmm. As I've mentioned, is one of the marvelous things about the book, and it moves mm-hmm. among um, primarily three disciplinary fields: Japanese literature, mm-hmm. art history, and performance studies. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I hope mm-hmm. that when listeners become readers, if they're not already, and they read the book, mm-hmm. the benefits of doing this kind of transdisciplinary work um, will be obvious. So, let's instead mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the challenges. Um, Reggie, what are some of the? What have you found to be some of the difficulties or? Causes challenges of trying Mm -hmm. to do this kind of ambitiously transdisciplinary work.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for that. that, um, (laughs) That's that very generous assertion. You know, I think, um, you know, there's a lot to say on the score. In fact, you know, you mentioned in some ways, you know, the how difficult it is to take out some of these kind of vestigial, um, you know, hopes and and themes. Uh, I think and and indeed, at, at a certain level, like the book mourns, mourns the the removal of all the dance stuff, right? And I think it, it does that in in trying to kind of smuggle it back in through uh, a real focus on embodiment and gesture and all these other things, and and really amplify those things to the extent that this you know things have been amputated. But I think in terms of the challenges you know I was really struck uh and in, in trying to revise the, the dissertation and um and talking to people i mean some of them you know editors um many of whom will remain nameless you know, there's a lot of talk in the academy I think particularly now in this this very <laughs> um you know, neoliberally bankrupt uh, kind of context about you know how interdisciplinarity and transdisciplinarity is is really what we're going for, and how great it is, and so forth. But nobody really talks about how um, just the stakes of that and how expensive it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, both both very literally in terms of of just kind of brute brute monetary resources or lack thereof, and then you know what it costs in terms of. Of trying to make a case to folks who, you know, for for whom interdisciplinarity, you know, in and of itself is not necessarily valuable, right? So there are deans who um, can make a name for promoting that kind of uh, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary emphasis on paper, but when it comes time to submit your tenure materials or, mm-hmm. you know, to submit to a journal. Um, I've found often that, that uh, you know, talk is cheap. That's right. So, you know, I think that, that uh, you know, I'm, I'm much more empathetic and sympathetic uh, and less, much less naive on that score than I was when I set out with the project. Because, partially because I, I should say I had, I was, you know, at Princeton at that particular moment, I just had amazing folks who were completely down for letting me do that. Uh, and kind of explore and, and be more experimental. And that's part of the reason I decided to, to be there. And I really gained a lot from that environment. But once I left that little, um, very lush green bubble, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, yeah, people were less, uh, less inclined to, to be sympathetic to that, uh, to that gesture. And, and that was good for me, actually, I should say it was, it was not necessarily kind, but it was really, um, it was really important to experience that. And one of the things just to say it very kind of a very, um, simple level was that to do something like this costs a lot of money. And I did not have a lot of money. I did not know how much money it would cost, you know, to actually say include images. Uh, I had certain editors say, you know, this sounds great, but if you could take out all of, this sad death stuff and uh make it cheaper by not um requesting so many color images and you know keep all the sex stuff that's that's that'd be a really great book that's the book <laughs> i want to publish you know I'm, and i'm and i'm not even you know that's that's slightly paraphrasing but not so much and i'm really grateful to that editor for being so transparent um and honest with me, because that was really helpful to hear because I was encountering a lot of resistance. First of all, because the book was trying to do too much, I think, in its earliest incarnation. It's too long. So it was it was kind of baggy and monstrous um, uh, in a lovable uh, way to me, but not so much the people who had to actually figure out how to publish it. Uh, but it was also, um, you know, the images cost a lot. And it's one of these things where I was really trying for a long time to figure out how to make the arguments with, you know, but still uh, keep things under this this really amorphous um, price point that I just couldn't hit otherwise you know I, I didn't know how to do that and I didn't have the money up front to say to a publisher oh I have this $10,000 $20,000 subvention to make this worth your while mm-hmm. and so you know there are people who said I'd love to do this but unless it's a coffee table book that we can sell to you know people who care nothing about these things but really want something pretty you know, the days of the of the Getty subvention are, are, are long past, mm. you know. And so, um, I'm sympathetic, but I can't do it. So I think that's important to say and, and I really want to say that, use that as an opportunity to really thank the University of Michigan Press and in particular Christopher Dreyer, who is a God among men, um, you know, for really believing in the project and the folks who were able to help me fund this, because without that it wouldn't first of all, it wouldn't look as pretty as it does. Um, but it also wouldn't be able to, to make the case, I think hopefully as clearly and and ideally as effectively as it has been because, you know, people kind of, uh, headed for the exits when I said, Hey, I want to take this transdisciplinary thing seriously, but this is what it means. It means money has to be paid to, to get these images in here. So I can talk about the gesture of the line. And unless you want this just to be a literary study, which is going to be much cheaper and likely shorter and on non-glossy stock. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm. I mean, one of the things um, that becomes really clear because of the images, right, and because they're in color and because Mm. of how you use the images not as illustration, right, but as part of the argument, Mm. um, is Mm. that, um, well, it, it becomes really... A central part of the argument of the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the mm-hmm. book um, is a project that theorizes, in the words of the book, the intersection between legibility and mortality. Through the work of mourning. Okay. So, throughout the book, the practices of reading and of mourning are intertwined. And by having access to the images as part of the argument, you know, you take us through the work of reading rather than just telling us about it, right? So, rather than mm-hmm. the book being a representation of what you're talking about, you're really making us part of that process. And this starts right in the first mm-hmm. chapter. So mm-hmm. close to the opening of chapter one, um, the book says something, and I love this. Um, it can be easy to take reading for granted now to, mm-hmm. to read as, um, is very, very clear right from the beginning of the book is again, in mm-hmm. the words of the book to do more than merely decipher marks on a surface. Okay. It's a multi-sensory mm-hmm. experience. Now, this is something mm-hmm. that I really love about the work that the book performs, um, and is mm-hmm. really, um, uh, And this is its critical and generative approach toward reading as practice and method. Now, in the book and Mm -hmm. here early in the first chapter, you propose a method Mm -hmm. that you call apprehensive reading. So, Reggie, Mm -hmm. um, as a way to really Mm -hmm. bring us deep into the body of the book, can you describe um, Mm -hmm. what is apprehensive reading and what's important for listeners to understand about it at this point?
1: Understand about it, yeah. No, thank you for that. Um, And I'm sorry. I just thought about one quick thing from the previous question. I just wanted to say briefly is that about the note to the reader. um, I mean, I want to say that part of the revision of the book was trying to make the book more and more generous. (laughs) I think it didn't start out that way, and I had to learn how to try to to really bring that to the fore. And also, I don't take anybody's reading of the book for granted. So it actually is a sincere, like you know, particularly since it's an eighty-five dollar book. Like you know, if you're reading it legally. I thank you for, for, you know, even if you're taking it out of the library, I really am appreciative because it took a lot of, of work from lots of different people to actually make it possible. So I don't, you know, I don't take that for granted. That's why I wanted to put that note in there and try to kind of cushion people's um, entrance into it. So along those lines, then, I think the apprehensive, the apprehensive reading part is really, uh, it's, it's about a, a few different things. I mean, on the one hand, it's, it's about what I'd like to think of as an intervention of this book in terms of, of pushing against some of the aspirations for being comprehensive and the more kind of positivist leanings of, of the discipline that I'm in, you know, namely pre-modern Japanese literary studies, um, or just pre-modern studies. Right. I think that one of the things that I've, I've noticed over the years and is, is, you know, I've benefited a lot from scholarship in that vein and I still do, um, and particularly as is practiced by scholars in Japan, who know more than I will ever know about, you know, the f- usage frequency of a certain term and a certain text, or all these <coughs> other things. And I think that's really helpful. And I've really benefited from that. But I think it also forecloses a lot and takes for granted a lot about the stability of texts and and um, and what texts are capable of. Um, and our own kind of engagement with them. And so the idea behind apprehensive reading was was about a couple things. One was about trying to take the materiality uh, of the actual object of a, of a, of a hand scroll seriously. So, um, you know, and part of the arguments um, of the book later on, particularly when we start to think about the the 21st century resurrection is that when I went to see these um, on different occasions in the museum it just struck me that you can't touch them and so you're basically treating this hand scroll this object that's that's designed to be handled and touched and interacted with and rolled and unrolled and you know according to the the, the width of and the strength of, of someone's torso and, and how um, people would touch these objects you know as though it were just a static painting. And it really struck me how how much is lost. I mean, I understand. I'm not I, I'm not expecting them to, to kind of <laughs> to give people access to these these really brittle uh, national treasures. But it was just really striking to me what was being lost in that um, uh, that desire to show something as the symbol of national. Um, Symbol of national pride, but to not be able to touch it was also withholding something from from the reader. And so, if reading, ideally, in the in the time that these these uh, objects were produced, was very much about touching and about this kind of social interaction and commenting and you know pleasure and all these other things. And that was being truncated. Then, presumably, by definition, then then you know this whole aspect of reading was also being lost right so i wanted to to kind of pun on the idea of apprehension both as what it means to apprehend um, which is to say to to kind of grab something to touch it to actually kind of bring it into grasp so which is to say the the kind of the main aspect of reading a hand scroll on the one hand but then also what it might mean in terms of effectively kind of foisting this this stance of a certain humility or um or of not trepidation per se, but at least of of slowing down the reading process, and not having a reader that is you know um, used to say texting or used to television or used to um, you know reading things on a Kindle and swiping things fingers and so forth to to move ahead, to just kind of the distance that that presumed familiarity with a text, and to do that as a generative thing. So to, in some ways, um, get us to recognize how little we really know about, um, about the text, and to not see that as a scary thing, right? And, and to not presume that comprehension or comprehensiveness, as opposed to apprehension or apprehensiveness, to be superior. Because so much about uh, so much of the scholarship that I, I didn't like and don't like is about trying to presume this uh, objective stance and trying to uh, assert this um, you know it, it seems really colonialist and expansionist like you know if I can only cover everything you know that's how I'll prove my worth as a scholar or that's how I'll, I'll be able to make the case that I am I am you know this is a magnum opus as opposed to. You know something that could be much more pedagogically useful in some ways, or much more uh, true to the to the the spirit of the work, if we can even talk in those you know those really kind of frou frou terms about about um, aesthetic products. But I just didn't like that stance of I'm the expert, and now I'm going to tell you everything there is to know about this thing, and that's how I'm going to prove myself and my worth and so forth. I didn't like that. I didn't like the kind of conversations I had with people who expected me to do something similar in order to um, prove that what I was thinking about and trying to write about was rigorous somehow. And the fact that it was so deeply entrenched and that people just took that for granted as, as a mode of operation and not everywhere. And interesting. I think it's really a field specific kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, I really wanted to work against that and to just say, you know what, um, Basically, what happens if we can't take comprehensiveness for granted as this kind of uh, this thing that guarantees the value of a project? And what happens when we can never know everything, but we still have to move forward? Right. Uh, what What does reading look like then and what what is our you know what other kinds of, of intuitions frankly you know can we can we bring to something and can we take intuition seriously as this really personal embodied uh, idiosyncratic way of moving through a text that that doesn't have um, recourse to this this kind of external, validation or structure of value that um, that we're used to.
0: And I think one of the things mm-hmm. um, that you just said was really striking and really brings um, mm-hmm. this into relief very powerfully. You talked about the spirit mm-hmm. of the work, right? And this is something that mm-hmm. was kind of offhand as something else that you were saying, but I think there's really something to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in moving mm-hmm. us into the book really moves us into a space where the work has a spirit, right? The work is alive and the work Mm -hmm. is dying and the work can die. Mm -hmm. And so rather than Mm -hmm. espousing a kind of method and a practice of reading, that's all about comprehensiveness and keeping intact. Mm -hmm. One of the beautiful things Mm -hmm. and the kinds of work that the book does is really bringing us Mm -hmm. into um, a a decompositional process, right? An appreciation Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. fact that um, dying happens. The work is decomposing. Mm -hmm. We are decomposing. Composing, right? We have this relationship mm-hmm. as bodies in time and space when we are reading and reading with um, an object, a mm-hmm. text. And you talk about this um, in various ways that inform um I think a really beautiful and really different approach to reading that um than a lot of readers of your book are going to have experienced. And this potentially has Mm. really profound ramifications beyond the pages of your book as a result. So you talk about Mm. this, um, in the first part of the book in terms of what you call Mm. decompositional aesthetics. Um, Right. Mm-hmm. and so uh, I'll just um, describe this right very briefly and this is largely in the words of the book that are um, kind of taken from different mm-hmm. bits um, you talk about the calligraphic tract okay and and I'll say mm-hmm. um, uh, just for listeners who have no idea a lot of the texts that you're talking about here although that changes when we get to the end of the book um, th- these are texts that have both kind of paintings and calligraphic texts as part of the body of the work mm-hmm. right so the calligraphic mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tract um, part of this text as you say dramatizes life's loss in process as a visceral mm-hmm. durative elaboration of lines so you have here calligraphy mm-hmm. is dramatizing loss and it's visceral and mm-hmm. it happens in time mm-hmm. and you say the resulting unrest emerges as a kind of decompositional aesthetics so after some chapters where you're elaborating um, the components and the concepts in this um, apprehensive reading that we've talked about, right? Including, um, what you've talked about, including an attentiveness to gesture, to texture of Mm -hmm. a text, to thinking and treating Mm -hmm. and reading calligraphy as performance. You start bringing Mm -hmm. us into the text, kind of examples of this decomp, decomposing and decomposition in the text itself. Okay. So, um, Part two of the book really does this very beautifully. And so let's move to part two and part three just to give listeners um, a sense Mm -hmm. of like, what does this look like in practice? Okay. So part two and chapter three, which is um, uh, the main um, chapter in part two, look closely at a Mm. figure in the Genji Scrolls, right? This is Kashiwagi. Mm -hmm. And he, Mm -hmm. um, as you say, epitomizes illegibility in the tale of Genji. Mm -hmm. So, Reggie, as a way to take listeners into, um, you know, kind of an example of what's happening in this apprehensive reading, sure. can you tell us something about yeah. Kashiwagi and something about what's happening yeah. that's so fascinating in this
1: text? It's fascinating. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I can try to do that um, and, and you know, kind of succinctly. I mean, I think one thing this for people. I'm not sure how many people are, will be familiar with Genji. Um, uh, who'll be reading the book? Uh, but it, I should say Kashiwagi is really this fascinating tragic figure in Genji, and uh, partially because you know he's this figure. Really, I mean, in my view, he's he's the only figure to really um, to give Genji uh, a kind of comeuppance. I mean, he one of the things that makes him so so interesting is that he's um, he writes in a very eccentric way, as Genji finds much to his chagrin when Genji locates a, a letter that he's been writing to uh, the third princess, who's one of Genji's wives, and Kashiwagi, you know, has an affair with her under Genji's nose, and Genji can't stand it, and effectively, you know, kills him. Effective, um, and so he's a really interesting figure, partially because. After Genji kind of basically stares him down, and it seems like and he uses this kind of evil spirit to possess Kashiwagi and kill him off, Kashiwagi's writing disintegrates. And the the real um, one of the most amazing scenes in the entire tale of Genji, in my view, is when Kashiwagi is, is sick, he's, he's on his deathbed effectively, and he's trying to write to um, Onna-san no Miya, the third princess. Um, who's now basically kind of given him the cold shoulder because she's also terrified of what Genji will do to her because it's clear that Genji is not pleased and now he's the most powerful person uh, in the realm uh, and he looks at his writing and it's um, it says um, it's uh, basically it's turned into the, this, the the tracks of strange birds so it's I think it's Ayash, ayashiki tori no ato um, and, and there's lots of different ways to read that but the the very fact that in this moment of of dying, he's compelled to write, first of all, and then he's forced to, to look at his writing as a reflection of his own um, limitations, his own inability to, to communicate. You know, it's kind of he's kind of emasculated in that moment, and this is part of what Genji hopes for, right? Partially because there's such this uh, the sexual undertone to to writing. It's the means by which courtship happens in hand in a hand context. So there's a lot of different things going on in this in this. Um, section, but it just seems so poignant, that moment where he looks at his own script and in some ways recognizing that he can't communicate, that his writing has disintegrated into this kind of chicken scratch, effectively, where writing is everything, right? You know, you don't see you don't see the person you're courting, you see their calligraphy, you know, long before you ever actually kind of consummate the deed. So it was just, uh, it's a really striking example. And so what I wanted to do is to, to really think about all of the different resonances of that moment of of confronting death by confronting a text Mm -hmm. right uh and to then think about what it means for for this this writer who is kashiwagi to also be um, a reader and effectively in that moment of reading to also be a mourner right he is now mourning um himself And in some ways before the fact, because he knows in looking at this, this, uh, decomposed writing that he does not have very much time left and that he will likely not have a legacy beyond this. So the question is, how do you read a text that's broken? Mm -hmm. And I think one answer one could give is that you can't read it the same way you read a text that's not broken. And so what what are the tools that we would need? And one of them, I think, uh, when I think about apprehensive reading, you know, he is incredibly apprehensive in reading his own reading and I mean, reading his own writing, sorry. Right. Because he knows that, uh, I mean, first of all, he's incredibly fearful. Um, he can barely keep his eyes open. He can barely sit up straight. So his body is struggling to be able to read on the one hand, but he can't do it in the same way. And it's at that moment then that his, his dear friend, Yugiri Genji's son comes in and effectively starts, um, who doesn't know all of the, the kind of dirty deeds that are going on, you know, effectively is staring at Kashiwagi, wondering what's going on. So now you have someone trying to read Kashiwagi in a very sympathetic way, but who, um, who can't understand what's going on. So I think that the part of what I'm trying to do in that, in that part of the book is to take that, that opacity of Kashiwagi's writing seriously. And, and therefore to say, you know, to what extent, should we take something like spirit possession or should we take something like, you know, if we can't read his text or what he's written his calligraphy properly, maybe we have to think about what his hair and his beard look like or, you know, how straight his hat is. And we have to read his body. If this text has now become in some ways a a figure of his decomposing body, um, then we have to read that too, because that's, that's what's going to help us understand this scene better. And I, I, you know, obviously I wasn't around, a thousand years ago, but I think that that's part of what the, the artists, you know, who made the, the hand scrolls, this, this, um, both the calligraphy part, the, the calligraphic pra- tract, and then also the painting, um, were doing is that they were, they were for an audience that was intimately familiar with all of these different, with the Genji tale, they were kind of opening the text in a new way to allow people to take gesture seriously and to kind of, you know, offer different kind of hypotheses about how certain certain angles of architecture or coloration of of different clothing items and so forth fit together to really bring the draw the reader into this in a in a in a way that wasn't available without the use of, of this particular hand scroll format. Oh, I
0: was just going to say, I mean, one of the really exciting things about this for me that I just want to flag for listeners is that, I mean, wearing my history of um, health and illness hat just for a second, this really excitingly points us to... Um, the idea that it's not just dying, well first of all texts have bodies and it's not just bodies that can be mm-hmm. ill um, but calligraphy can be ill right? And so that this chapter yes. really mm-hmm. takes yeah. us into um, a method for understanding and reading illness in calligraphic mm-hmm. terms right? In terms of like mm-hmm. line, weight, and column width and you teach us how to read the body of the text as it is manifesting mm-hmm. illness which I think is fascinating mm-hmm. and especially um you know from the perspective of like understanding health bodies and illness and history (laughs) and where those manifest this is just really exciting
1: so oh thank you so much yeah and i think i mean along those lines i think think it's um you know this is a book about a lot of things and one of them is about trying i mean me trying to do these texts justice you know and try to to um proliferate as, as, as best I can, hopefully as clearly as I can, different ways of reading, you know, and and I think that's part of my own, you know, attempt to grapple with these really um, crazy fascinating, but also crazy difficult to, to handle texts. And, you know, hopefully people from different fields, whether that's, you know, history of science or medicine or people interested in illness and find techniques there that are, are helpful. I mean, I think that to go back to something you said earlier, one of the things that's, that can be hard about this, and I think this is where the apprehensive reading comes in. Is that you know this is not a document, and and a kind of more maybe traditional or more staid historical notion might you know might be this is very much this kind of creative, um, kind of highly idiosyncratic interpretive text, and, uh, and yet it has things to teach us about you know how bodies and and ill bodies and dying bodies you know were. Were um, people made sense of those at a particular historical moment, you know, and 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 are valuable. And you know, I think there's always this thing in the back of my mind about um, you know what deserves to be read and to take and to be taken seriously. And you know, at least when um, when I was in graduate school, and even since then, there's this kind of presumption that the capital H historical should take precedence, and you know, the artistic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like you know this whole this joke about about um you know all the literature students you know have to take the history seminars, but the history but the, the, the history students don't have to take the literature seminars they take other history of different regions, and maybe that's that's changed, you know, but in my day that was not the case and and just you know that even institutionally we have these kind of biases about about what's valuable um and how a certain document um, that is not as as elaborate and filigreed and you know and is not kind of um, flaunt it's <laughs> it's in some ways it's non-seriousness right it does not flaunt its fictitious its fictitiousness to the same degree as is, is should somehow be discounted or not taken as seriously and I wanted to try to to read this hard like read it really really as closely as I possibly could in order to kind of push back against some of that and and to try to hopefully dismantle some of those and
0: speaking of um, exactly what you just were talking about, for listeners who are particularly interested in um, an elaboration of some of these ideas that you just um, were sharing with us, the last part of the book, the conclusion, Mm. goes into issues of privilege, right? And the way that issues of privilege are entangled with Mm. um, the reading and having an understanding of of bodies and of dying bodies. Mm -hmm. And this is also something that comes into the next chapter, um, actually the next two chapters Mm. of the book. So let's um, make sure we we get to this even if it's just a tiny little taste absolutely. of this amazingly sure, delicious yeah. cake in part three. So part three <laughs> of the sure. um, book elaborates a question that you were just um, bringing up in your discussion of Kashiwagi, and that's the question of how to read mm-hmm. a dying body. So this cha- mm-hmm. or this part of the book, rather, part three, mourning, it focuses on the death of mm-hmm. Genji's most beloved wife, Murasaki no Ue. Mm-hmm. Is that how you... Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and
1: Um, And it does
0: this in order to, um, again, in the words of the book, examine the relationship between Mm -hmm. legibility and gendered styles Mm -hmm. of looking. So the chapter, um, Mm -hmm. as it um, says itself, performs a genealogy of her subjection. Mm -hmm. And here I just Mm want to kind of orally footnote for listeners, there's a whole Mm -hmm. fascinating and really important discussion of genealogy and the Mm -hmm. relationship and the distinctions between genealogy and lineage Earlier in the book, I think mm-hmm. um, in chapter two right. in particular, we didn't talk about that in detail, right. but issues of genealogy. No, and sure. um, that's a word that carries, that does a lot of work in the book, is what I'm saying. And so yeah, I just invoked right. that exactly. So, lineage, listeners, yeah. um, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. a lot more about genealogy that you can find in the book. But okay, a genealogy of her mm-hmm. subjection. So, this mm-hmm. chapter, chapter four takes us a little bit into the history of these um, characters' relations with each other. And it argues, um, and this is largely in the words of the book, that Genji's melancholic attachment to the women in his life who came before Murasaki and who died, and there's a lover and there's a mother, motivate his investment in her as both a student and as a lover. And that investment like shapes his writing, and it also shapes the way he reads her body. Okay, so there is like so much going on here. And I want to honestly, Reggie, if we had like another five hours, we could spend it just on this chapter. Um, So
1: um, there's a lot going on. What I
0: wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about are two things that just came up in what I said um, that really do a lot of work Mm. here. One of them is this idea Mm. of melancholy and the other is the idea of Mm -hmm. pedagogy. And so let's start with melancholy. Mm -hmm. The chapter talks about melancholia as what you call a kind of failed mourning. And that's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G for listeners. Melancholia is a failed mourning and it engages Freud um, pretty substantively in this. Can you talk about the importance of melancholia as failed mourning in terms of the work it does for the book?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I think, I mean, one thing to say is, is that, um, you know, part of, you know, I'm, I'm a Freud fan in this book, you know, I mean, there's other types, there's other, I mean, other types of cycle uh, analysis that one could, could draw on, but I think that that was really, really helpful for me to think uh, as a paradigm, you know, or as a kind of frame to think through some of the things that were going on with just kind of object relations and and relationships between people and things and so forth. Um, You know, for me, what's really important to keep in mind for uh, melancholic mourning or melancholia is this notion of failure, and the ways in which failure can be productive. So even when I talk about, you know, <laughs> failure and and the and the, the potential for failure of the book in the note to the reader, that's kind of what I'm 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 gesturing towards is that melancholia is It sucks. Like it's, it's, it's painful, much like mourning, you know, but it's also incredibly productive. And I, what I wanted to do in this part of the book is to really think about, kind of unpack that and think about how, how generative melancholia could be. And what that means in in Genji's case, and is that, you know, he's, he's lost his mother. He's lost these women that are really close to him. These, these, these mother figures, but not also kind of other lovers. And by the time he comes to Murasaki as, as a child, when he, when he's, um, older, and she's effectively a child. It's exactly that kind of baggage that he's carrying that um, leads him to her specifically, and then leads him to train her as you know his his star pupil. Right. So there's a way in which you know what he does in terms of playing with dolls and teaching her how to write and work on her poetry and so forth, grooming her effectively into being. This kind of ideal companion, lover, etc., to fill all of these holes in himself. Um, I call it melancholic pedagogy because, um, the, all the energy of that pedagogical enterprise is coming out of this, this loss, this really, really traumatizing, frankly, loss that he's experienced. So, I mean, when I teach Genji, my students say, oh, he's such a creep and he's so terrible and blah, 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 which is all of which is true on the one hand. But uh, it's, it's also, I think, important to, to say, well, where is this, um, where are these, these kind of exploitive or you know, really kind of tyrannical desires coming from? And it's coming from this space of loss, this kind of unaddressed, this his inability to mourn the loss of his mother and these other figures in his, in his, in his life that, that push him down this path. And what that means for Murasaki is these two things. One is that she too eventually becomes a casualty of that, of that trauma, but she also gets this incredible education and you know, this was part of the. I mean, I think these last chapters were really. Um, I don't want to say an evolution of my thinking, but I, I think I, I something clicked for me when I started to think about, you know, um, beyond any broader aspirations to make the book more worldly than a lot of work in you know pre-modern studies tends to be. I was just thinking about just changes in the academy um, and what it means to to teach and to learn and. You know how from i'll speak for myself you know how i i learned a lot from from you know very difficult circumstances in my own education and and you know the students around me you know particularly nowadays folks are really dealing with a lot um and trying to think about how does that generative and what does one do when you realize that you know with murasaki one of the things that's interesting is that her midaregaki you know her tangled script is is incredibly gorgeous uh, as is she, right? I mean, uh, but that comes from Genji kind of holding on too tight, right? And it comes from, you know, it's the product of it accrues out of of his um, his unresolved mourning for other people, and indeed, when she dies, um, she's resisting, you know, she's she's saying, you know, I want to be a nun, um, and he won't let her right because he can't bear the thought of her of her uh leaving him and that's effectively you know what what pushes her over the edge you know so she kind of wills her own death at that at that moment and and it's really interesting to then think about how his writing then and his reading his capacity to read and write then perishes with her because he can no longer kind of control um her her development you know how how she learns and so forth so it's it's um melancholia is really uh becomes a frame through which to understand, you know, how um, how teaching happens and how lessons are, you know, kind of are imparted and how they can be, you know, both painful but also generative. Um, and, you know, there's a kind of part of the idea be- behind the, the contrast between, say, genealogy and lineage is you know, genealogy, this is coming out of Foucault's notion, in Nietzsche um, genealogy history of it being this really complicated, you know, frankly, kind of calligraphic process, this, this, um, you know, beset by all these different you know, dissipations and twists and turns and everything, that it's not a straight line. And even these lines that seem straight and straightforward are incredibly complex when we kind of um, probe beneath the surface. And, um, you know, so melancholia becomes... A, a way to think about that—that that really complicated nature of of transmission or of dissemination, and uh, and how relationships between texts, but also between people, are are always kind of bearing the traces of mm-hmm. that complexity. And
0: this actually really nicely takes yeah. us into um, the fourth part of the book. Um, so you talked yeah. about. Um, control, right? Also a little bit before, mm-hmm. um, and this very much reminded me of what's sure. happening here. So part four of the book brings us into the twentieth, uh, 21st mm-hmm. century. And in this part of the book, mm-hmm. you chart again in the words of the book, how loss is suppressed, mm-hmm. redressed or repurposed to serve a range of aims mm-hmm. within contemporary Japanese society. So this is fascinating mm-hmm. and we'll only have a little bit of time to talk about it, um, but I want to sure, just yeah. kind of give listeners a sense of what's happening. So chapters six brings mm-hmm. us into the Genji Scrolls reborn project um, mm-hmm. this is you describe this as a kind of a resurrection or an attempt at a resurrection in which mm-hmm. like really interestingly, Um, all the kind of generative darknesses and opacities of the object that we've Mm -hmm. learned to to live with, to decompose together with, to read in the previous chapters Mm -hmm. are kind of Mm -hmm. um, taken out. right? So this -hmm. this exhibit or exhibition renders all of these Mm -hmm. um, places of discomfort and opacity transparent, or it renders them null Mm -hmm. actually in order to make the object as transparent Mm -hmm. as possible. The text is severed from the image. Um, You talk about the kind of Mm -hmm. culturalist current that goes um, along with this. Um, And the chapter, Mm -hmm. chapter six, does this beautiful work mourning the kinds of omissions that come Mm -hmm. from this selective resurrection, um, which is really a transformation Mm -hmm. of the object itself. And you talk here also about the gendering Mm -hmm. of the labor, um, Mm -hmm. where this exhibition makes much of the kind of masculine men scientists and the feminine women artists, (laughs) right? And there's all kinds of implications um, of that that Mm -hmm. listeners will find in the chapter. But you don't just leave it there, right? You don't just say like, oh, you know, like doesn't that, isn't that unfortunate, right? Um, You also do the work of imagining what might an exhibition looked like that did Mm. kind of honor and live with um, and work with these opacities. And you describe this experimental exhibition in Chapter 7, and you call it Patina Mm. Japonica, the Time-Worn Opacity Mm. Embracement Exposition. So, Reggie, (laughs) um, (laughs) let's bring this exhibition to life briefly. Um, Can you talk about this imagined exhibition? Why is it important? What are the stakes? and What kind of work Mm. might this be doing?
1: Yeah no yeah thank you. So um, so first of all shout out to, to Phil Caffin um, for suggesting not the title you know but just kind of putting you know I did a, a book workshop at University of Chicago um, and he was there and um, he made a really a really great point at that at that workshop and he's um, and he said you know when I was this is an, an, a less a less kind of generous version of the book with a very early draft. Um, he said, it sounds like you're blaming the modern exhibition for being a modern (laughs) exhibition. Um, and I think, I think in some ways I, I was, I wasn't really meaning to, but there was a kind of way in which my, the kind of, the, the militant curmudgeon in me was, was like, you know, and then they took out this and they did this and blah, blah, blah. And interestingly, I was sounding like some of the scholars that I think, um, you know, might've hated the book, right? You know, I think I was just like, they're taking, you know, they're, this is, I was, I was This really, it was this really kind of, um, it wasn't reductive. I mean, I think it, it was this point where I was really, um, my love for the object was coming through and I didn't know what to do with those feelings effectively. And, and so what what was happening is that I was like, look at how terrible this is, you know, consumerist culture is terrible and blah, blah, blah. And I think what he was suggesting, um, was that, that's all well and good, but it doesn't go far enough. And so after thinking about it for some years, actually, I was like, you know, how do I not just complain, you know, like it's easy to, it's easy to, to criticize something, but how do you actually make something out of that? Right. It dawned on me that I should probably try to say, okay, well, if I were to make one, like I'm no curator, I'm no art historian, you know, but what would my, what would the right way be like, given that we can't, you know, magically go back in time and and find, you know, completion. And indeed, like I say, you know, being comprehensive to find all the pieces and put them together into this shining hole is not actually, is actually misses the point completely. So how do I kind of address this? And it seemed to me that, that making this kind of fanciful kind of, um, uh, in some ways, throwback to the, the kind of early world's fairs, you know, completely kind of ludicrous, but also... Um, uh, I think invested, uh, exhibition would be a nice way to do it. And the idea here was really to say, okay, let's take the the losses and the opacities and not treat them as, you know, the kind of evil redheaded stepchildren and, you know, actually try to, to value them. Like what would it mean to to give these things value as opposed to just trying to eradicate them? And so what, one of the things I, I do is, is try to take the emphasis off of, um, Merely looking and to make it this space where, you know, people can have coffee and tea and talk and in some ways try to to hearken back to the kind of salon culture of Murasaki Shikibu's day, you know, this kind of um, Genji era type interaction with the text where people aren't just um, are really kind of actively trying to use it to create something else. Um, and also uh, not getting rid of these big black spots, <laughs> but but actually kind of wearing them, like having buttons of these big black spots that actually um, really invite people to ask questions about it, as opposed to just get rid of it. And you know, people can read that that section. It's really just a kind of thought experiment um, that, on the one hand, might seem a little silly, but I, I felt like okay, and yet. <laughs> and yet uh it's it's a way to interact with these texts that uh is not as first of all chauvinist ideally um is not as reductive um it's also frankly not going to be as popular or as um consumerist because there's very little of mm-hmm. value to sell now and that's mm-hmm. important because that move away from the consumerist arc of of the exhibition actually is, is helps to cut down on some of the cultural nationalism that's that's subsidizing this to begin with. So I think that that um, that was I mean partially it's it's like, you know, we're getting towards the end of the book. I need to have some fun at this point to to make sure that I don't, you know, kill myself, <laughs> you know, in the last, you know, in the home stretch. And so that was it it had the the added benefit of of being of being a a salve in in dark times when one's trying to just kind of push this thing over the, over the finish line. But it was also a way to, to kind of push back against my own insecurities and, and curmudgeonly inclinations with regard to this, this undertaking, which was massive and expensive. And, you know, those, the artists that are cast as being girly artists and, you know, those manly men with the telescopes and the x-rays and the other thing, you know, they really worked really hard to do this thing and really believed in it. And I, I kind of wanted to, to, in some ways make myself more vulnerable in saying, you know, I'm not just going to sit here and, and and criticize this as being worthless or valueless, you know, at all. I'm going to try to, to make something that I think it does a different kind of work, um, and, you know, give the reader uh, the opportunity to say, oh, this is really fascinating or this seems like complete, you know, complete nonsense. Uh, and and to, but to really at the same time sit with the discomfort that would come from some of the things that I'm proposing in that exhibition. Like, no ex- I've never seen an exhibition like it. And I think there's plenty of reasons why, because I think it would be a completely unsuccessful but therefore, you know, incredibly mm-hmm. interesting way to do things. And I think the last thing to say on that score is just that I was inspired by Masao Miyoshi's, um, piece, uh, uh, writing about Documenta X about, um, just how that was run and, and the kind of format of that exhibition and what he found so refreshing about it when I was writing about that, that part and just trying to think, okay, well, how could we kind of hack the museum and do a different kind of work, um, that wasn't just about kind of ooing and aahing at this backlit glass and kind of effectively genuflecting before the object, you know, how can we take it into hand and, and use it to be be more in fact, creative.
0: it becomes part of um, something that you propose here in this chapter and at the end of the book um, that you call mm-hmm. dwelling with the dead, right? Um, so dwelling with mm-hmm. the dead as a mm-hmm. critical practice. Reggie, as we move toward right. the conclusion of our conversation, um, can you say a little sure. bit about what dwelling with the dead as a critical practice might entail?
1: Might entail, yeah. I think one of the things that involves is just slowing down actually. Uh, and a lot of things in some ways it's, you know, I, when I get to that point of the book, you know, I've talked a lot about genealogy. I've talked a lot about apprehensive reading. I've talked a lot about trying to proliferate ways of, of seeing and thinking and and, and engaging with texts. And so in that moment, you know, the, the basic argument there is that I felt like the, the Resurrect, the Gendis Scrolls Reborn exhibits, um, were really trying to to get rid of death and to not reckon with it and really trying like death was 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 a bad thing and so there are all these efforts to redress it were really were you know i think very deliberately trying to produce a fiction of everlasting life that um i thought was really pernicious um, and so, by contrast, I propose dwelling with the dead as a way of, of mourning. First of all, so it's in some ways it's it's, a, it's kind of a, a euphemism for mourning, and what that what that entails is is not either taking um, not running away from the fact of mortality, kind of sitting with it and and staring it in the face, and you know reflecting on that um, and embracing that. Uh, which is hard, (laughs) you know, like I think that, that, you know, the majority of folks don't want to think about the fact that, you know, we're all going to die and we don't know when, and, and that that has implications, not just for how we live our lives, but, you know, how we look at other people and things and how we let things into our lives or not and uh, what we take for granted and what we overlook effectively. So dwelling with the dead was really, um, Specifically, was meant to to push against the um, the tenor of that of those re- those resurrected Genji ex- exhibitions, and to kind of propose a way of of reflecting thoughtfully and um, on these objects in ways that can be really uh, uncomfortable, but I think ultimately really um, generative uh, in terms of alerting us to things that we wouldn't be able to see or or understand otherwise. <laughs> Um, you know, at a very concrete level, it's it's about you know taking this, like looking at the calligraphy and valuing it just as much as those paintings that may or may not remind us of ourselves. So it's about in some ways a less narcissistic <laughs> engagement with with these these objects, but more I think more existentially or philosophically, it's about trying to slow down and 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 look more inward um, in a less narcissistic way in order to read better. And to understand, you know, the world um, in, a, in a less fascist way, effectively. In fact, effect, mm-hmm.
0: here's something that you come back to in the conclusion. I'm just going to read,
1: because
0: um, I just love this. Okay. This is from 277. To mourn is not merely to experience loss. Rather, mourning names a process of making legible the circumstances surrounding, infusing, and even demanding mortality. This grants the possibility Mm -hmm. of grappling with loss by learning to repurpose it. As injury, perhaps, mm-hmm. but also as a resource for thriving. And I just wanted to get mm-hmm. that out there because there mm-hmm. is so much in the conclusion, mm-hmm. right? And we won't really have a chance to talk mm-hmm. about this at any Um, Mm. length, but there's so much in the conclusion that really dwells with that idea and carries it further um, into how we understand privilege, as I mentioned before, um, but also in terms of Mm. how we understand the relationship between these medieval issues and contemporary issues of Mm. violence of all sorts, um, of geopolitics Mm. right Mm. now, um, and sort of, Mm -hmm. it's really
1: white supremacy yes, white supremacy yeah.
0: in particular um mm-hmm. and the conclusion does the work of not just saying doesn't this suck but like okay like let's right. it, let's have it suck like let's experience the suckage yeah. and it and does, it does. Right, yeah, and I'm not sure. get over it but as you say get on with it yeah. right sort of like how do we yeah, dwell yeah. with that and how do we um find a way <laughs> to exist and to move forward move exactly
1: forward. yeah exactly. and thrive even yeah <laughs> Yeah. And, and I know that we don't, we don't have the time to really get into it, but I mean, I think that's, I, I wanted to say that, um, I mean, a, a couple of things. One is that I really do, I mean, part of my own, um, over the course of the revisions of the book and so forth, I mean, I, I, I came to a different uh, understanding of of what mourning could mean. Uh, and, you know, at, at a certain level, it's just as simple as like, oh, it doesn't have to be a sad thing. It's actually a way of, of making sense of things and you know, um, despite all these adversities and so forth, really trying to to be clear eyed and move forward and try to, to mine these difficult experiences to move forward. And, and I think it's important to say that I really wanted the book to, to the extent that it could, I mean, part of the idea behind even thinking about the 21st century in this exhibition, these exhibitions was about trying to make um, a, a gesture towards being worldly, because it happens so seldom in works about pre-modern Japanese literature, right? And to really try to take that seriously and find a way to connect these things, which is really hard to do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful that that uh, the Genji Scrolls and and all that cultural nationalist sentiment was able to to help me do that. But I think along those lines, you know, things like the 2016 election and seeing how devastated a lot of you know my students uh, and you know people generally were with the kind of the election of Trump was was really on my mind and i saw you know effectively how broken you know so many people were and you know i wasn't surprised that he was elected and so i was both kind of um, sympathetic and empathetic toward the people around me who were really reeling and i think but also kind of trying to figure out both why I wasn't so surprised and, and also kind of what to say to people who were really looking for some kind of guidance and, you know, a reason not to despair. And, um, the conclusion is trying to do that. I don't know that it does it affect, you know, really effectively, but it's, it is, it's trying to grapple with that and to, to think about, you know, what it means to to take loss seriously and not just try to move past it and then therefore miss in some ways, a lot of the lessons that can be taken, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And I think I was really struck by, um, you know, the factionalism before the election and then afterwards, you know, this kind of red blue dichotomy that's, that's so reductive and really I think was part of the reason people were just dis- were so despairing in that moment. It's like blue lost, red won. you know, it's over. And it's like, well, you know, politics is so much more capacious and so much broader than that. Um, and it seemed like people were were in some ways not dwelling with the dead right we're gonna kind of, we we're, were so um pained understandably, and so traumatized that we're missing this opportunity that seemed really right to really rethink an entire system of how one interacts and you know um assumes some kind of political position and tries to to move and instead we're just reverting quite unconsciously in a really melancholic way, right. To these kind of red blue factionalisms that were part of the, the problem to begin with. And so I think that had this book been, was written long before, you know, like the you know, versions of it, it just took a long time to publish, but had it, had, had I been writing or revising the conclusion, you know, a year earlier, um, I wouldn't have been trying to, to really kind of grapple with those, those connections. But, um, one of the byproducts of it being a product of history is that that stuff is in there. Um, and, and I think, you know, I I like to think the book is better for it. Um, you know, some people will really think of that as, as being far afield or as, as, um, somehow not germane to the project, you know, but I think it's really central because it does get us to think about things like white supremacy um, in terms of how it lets us read or forecloses certain options for reading or cultural nationalism in Japan or, or you know, in the context of Brexit or in the context of Make America Great Again or all these other things, right? I think that um, that really would enhance our capacity to, to go back to, say, Heian texts or medieval texts with fresh eyes and really make connections that should be made in order to, to enrich, you know, our capacity to think Better so thoughts. On
0: that note, Reggie, um, thank you so much. Yeah. There's so much more that we could talk about, right? It's, like, it's no, 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 really sure. just a Absolutely, tremendously, sure, tremendously sure. rich book. Um, but in the absence of another five hours, which, as I've mentioned, I would love to have a talk, <laughs> is there or anything Alice. in particular no, sure, um, that course. you'd like to mention that we didn't have a chance to talk about, um, perhaps especially for listeners who aren't yet readers?
1: Yeah, sure. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Carla, for, for allowing me this opportunity. I'm really grateful for it. And and it's, you know, we can talk more <laughs> we can talk more off podcast about all these other things. Um Yeah, I don't I don't think so. I would just say that, you know, again, um for people who aren't readers uh and are thinking about being readers, you know, I I um you know, I'm grateful for your interest you know i think that it's as i mentioned in the in the the note to the reader i think it's a hard book um because it's trying it's a hard book to read i think because it's trying to do a lot of different things simultaneously um but i would really hope as a method junkie if there are any method junkies out there, that that i really do think that there's something in there for lots of different constituencies uh and for the students out there that are trying to figure out whether or not you know (laughs) to invest in old fusty crumbly texts (laughs) because you haven't been given the opportunity or a good reason to, to do so. I hope that you'd find some reasons in this book. You know, I really do. Um, you know, this is never going to be a bestseller, but, um, I did write it with, um, with the hope and with the, the, um, the intention that, that, um, it would actually bring people in and not alienate folks. So, I mean, it's for the reader to judge how well that happens, but um, it is really trying to reach beyond a very kind of boutique enclave. and And, uh, and I hope that people who come to it or decide to, to try it out will will really uh, get a sense of that. Should they decide to, to pick up, so
0: Reggie, what's next for you now that the book is out?
1: <laughs> uh, sleep. <laughs> um sleep is is you know no um no I mean it's interesting I I uh, I talked to you a bit Carla about this but you know the book in its earliest baggiest incarnation was you know almost twice as long and that's on me because I didn't know anything you know I didn't know that 90,000 words was the editorial sweet spot you know and and I was just writing you know what seemed to be germane to this topic and. It turned out that you know questions of sexuality, of queerness, um, of different types of of loss—not just death—were uh, really s- central to that. And I ended up, you know, I'm finishing up now uh, revisions for a second uh, second project, um, which is uh, it's called Approximate Remove: Queering Intimacy and Loss in uh, the Tale of Genji. And in some ways, this is. Is, is kind of the, um, the complement to textures of mourning. It's, it's a lot of the stuff that, that I had to cut, um, from, from the book. Uh, and it's much more focused around kind of questions of, of queerness, not just in terms of sexuality, but in terms of, of different modes of relating to the world. So much more, hopefully, you know, much broader, uh, way of understanding, um, you know, different types of orientations in the world um, with regard to intimacy and loss. And so I'm finishing that up now and, and uh, I'm excited about that. And beyond that, there's two other projects that I'm, I'm kind of finishing up. Uh, one is um, a book on dance. So I'm like, finally, it's like, okay, now I'm going to do this dance project. Now that the tenure book is done and these other kind of more legibly um Invested in expertise, books are done. There's a choreographer and dancer, and really amazing artist named Yasuko Yokoshi, who I've worked with uh, for some years now. Does um, just really great work, and uh, I'm trying to to write a book um, on her on her works now. Um, and so I'm working on that. And then the, the longer term project, which is going to take a couple of years, I think, um, is a book on slavery and performance in pre-modern Japan. And that's that's where I finally get to kind of sink my teeth into performance as most people think of it. So it's a, not calligraphy, but kind of dancing and other types and apostasy and thinking about the Jesuits in and, and Japan and no drama in a very serious way and minstrelsy and all these things and race, racial formations as well. Um, And I'm just kind of starting out on that project and giving talks on that material now. So those are the things besides that, just trying to draw a lot more and play more guitar and, and let the book kind of be its own thing, not, not reread it, you know, and, and, you know, slap myself in the face when I, I realize I should have rephrased things and stuff, this kind of to, to mourn, to mourn, <laughs> to mourn <laughs> you know, my ideal version of the book and get past that and just kind of keep working, kind of plugging away at other things and trying to, stay healthy, you know?
0: I hear you. Yeah. And on that on note, that note um, right. Reggie, thank you so much. No, I can't thank you, thank you enough. No, thank Congratulations you. on a brilliant Oh, no,
1: thank book. you so much. Um, great. And
0: best you. of luck. And I'll look forward to talking with you about the next one. That
1: sounds so great. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate it. And one more thing I just wanted to say, thank you again uh-huh. to Christopher Dreyer, um, uh, the acquisitions editor at UM Press, who really... Believe in this project. There are lots of people that helped. You know, Allison Alexey, my wife, is also amazingly supportive in that regard. Um, but I just want to make sure that that they get their proper um, acknowledgement. You know, among you know all these other people, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Reggie. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us this time, and come back and check us out again next time.